Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 24, the book of Matthew, chapter 7, continued. All right, as we continue in Matthew chapter 7 today, we're going to review what we covered in the prior lesson. So let's begin by opening our Bibles and reading the opening verses of Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is on page 1231, 1231. And we're just going to read verses 1 through 6. Don't judge so that you won't be judged. For the way you judge others is how you will be judged. The measure with which you measure out will be used to measure to you. Why do you see the splinter in your brother's eye, but not notice the log in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that splinter out of your eye when you have the log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly, so that you can remove the splinter from your brother's eye. Don't give to dogs what is holy. Don't throw your pearls to the pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet, then turn and attack you. <clears throat> Round a century ago, Thomas Walter Manson, who was a biblical scholar that lived and wrote in England, said these words about the first verse of Matthew chapter 7. He said, The whole business of judging persons is in God's hands, for He alone knows the secrets of men's hearts. This does not mean that we are not to use all the moral insight we possess in order to discover what is right and wrong, but that we are to confine ourselves to that field and refrain from passing judgment on persons. For our judgment is itself a factor in shaping their lives, and a harsh judgment may help a fellow creature on the road to perdition. You know, I like what Manson had to say, because he looks on the other side of the coin of what is written in verse 2. That is, in the second verse, Christ goes on to explain the reasons why it is beneficial for a worshiper of God to refrain from judging another person. It is that by whatever measure we judge others, God will judge us. So it's better for us that we don't judge others at all. So what Manson addresses is the harmful effect that our judging of another may have on them. And perhaps no greater judgment can come upon a person than to be shamed. And for the most part, judgment is shaming. In our day, in the Western world, shaming is mostly an emotional matter that leads to embarrassment, maybe uh, humiliation. 
lately it has taken on a political element to it. But that emotional matter can very well, as Manson says, shape our lives. For instance, when a young person is over and over again reprimanded by being shamed or told they are stupid or worthless, such will eventually become the loom from which the fabric of their life will be woven. But in Christ's day, and still to this day, in many parts of the world, such a shaming judgment could immediately alter a person's precious social status. Thus a public judgment was very serious. It was immediate in effect, and it usually demanded a remedy of revenge in Christ's day. Thus for a modern Western Christian, the idea of not judging others is kind of abstract and can be difficult to conceptualize. It's less abstract in the East. Therefore, we can get all kinds of strange ideas about what judging and not judging means and, and looks like in actual practice. Now, verse 2 makes a consequence of our wrongful judging of another into an issue of proportional justice. Yet, let's not make the mistake of thinking that how we judge and how God judges are the same things or accomplished on the same plane. Our judgment means that we look with disdain at how someone might appear to us, or perhaps in their dress, or we might determine that a per person's worthiness is according to their race, or their nationality, or their tribal lo loyalty perhaps is inferior to our own. Or maybe we do so from nothing more than what someone says or from a custom they follow that we find primitive or ignorant. So we ridicule them. We condemn them. We deplore them in an effort to diminish them and thus inflict shame. Now the implication Jesus makes is that we don't know that person's intent, motive, true character, and often we don't know their circumstances. But even more important, we have no idea how God sees them. Clearly, this judging that Yeshua speaks against has nothing to do with criminal activity. Christ is not saying that we shouldn't make a determination as to a person's guilt or innocence based on factual evidence of wrongdoing, right, that includes being say, eyewitness to a crime. Now, ironically, for us to judge and shame another in the typical non-criminal sense results in God judging us in the criminal sense. That is, our judging by deploring our fellow man becomes our sin. 
It becomes our crime in God's eyes. So God will put us on trial accordingly. When does this trial occur? Most Bible scholars say that the wording in Matthew means it will happen in the future, at the end of days when God judges everyone. No doubt this is true. And yet, His judgment upon us may also have temporal consequences during our lifetimes. See, the matter of judging another person is so important to Yeshua that He continues and He expands on this basic principle in verses 3 through 5. Here appears the famous metaphorical expression about a log in one's eye compared to the splinter in the eye of the person that's being judged. The bottom line to this is that the outward behavior exposes that person's inner condition. It reveals their hypocrisy. That is, the person who judges and shames another is nearly universally a hypocrite according to Jesus. They are supersensitive to what they see as wrong in another because that same wrong exists probably in even greater measure within the accuser's own heart and mind. Thus the problem and the solution lies not with the accused, it lies with the accuser. The accuser, the one who is judging, is told to remove the log from their own eye. That is, remove this great moral defect. And then they will see clearly enough to more legitimately notice a splinter in another's eye. That is, notice a minor moral defect. But of course, it goes without saying that once we truly realize the enormity of the log in our own eye and we repent of it to God and then hopefully remove it, then being on the lookout for splinters in the eyes of others usually comes to a halt. Listen to what Paul had to say about this. In Romans Chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, we read this. Therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are, passing judgment. For when you judge someone else, you're passing judgment against yourself. Since you who are judging do the same things he does. We know that God's judgment lands impartially on those who do such things. Do you think that you? A mere man passing judgment on others who do such things, yet doing them yourself, will escape the judgment of God? Or perhaps you despise the riches of His kindness and His forbearance and patience, because you don't realize that God's kindness is intended to lead you to turn from your sins. But by your stubbornness, by your unrepentant heart, You are storing up anger for yourself on the day of anger 
when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, for He will pay back each one according to his deeds. What I'd like for you to take from this is the idea that the act of judging as spoken about in Matthew needs to be primarily understood within the context of shaming, and that God will pay back both in our present lives, but especially in our eternal future, for doing such a thing that He regards as having no place in the lives of His worshipers. Now in verse 6 is yet another famous saying of Jesus about not giving to dogs what is holy, and not throwing pearls to pigs. Now obviously this is another metaphorical statement, but what is it illustrating? It is about the necessity of keeping the ritually clean apart from the ritually unclean, the holy separated away from the profane. To understand it, we must see that it is within the context of the arrival of the Kingdom of Heaven. Listen to this statement in the book of Revelation that I think helps to clarify what Yeshua is attempting to impart to his listeners. Now, regarding the new city of Jerusalem, the capital of the kingdom of heaven, we read this in Revelation chapter 21, verse 27. Nothing impure may enter it, nor anyone who does shameful things or lies. The only ones who may enter are those who, whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. See, we are instructed to stay separated from the unclean and from the profane, because things and people who are characterized by uncleanness and lack of holiness have no place in the Kingdom of Heaven. Let's move on to verse 7. Open your Bibles back up to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to read 7 through 11. Once again, we're on page 1231 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Keep asking, and it will be given to you. Keep seeking, and you will find. Keep knocking, the door will be opened to you. For everyone who keeps asking receives. He who keeps seeking finds. And to him who keeps knocking, the door will be opened. I mean, is there anyone here who, if his son asks him for a loaf of bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, you'll give him a, a snake? So if you, even though you're bad, know how to give your children gifts that are good, how much more will your Father in heaven keep giving good things to those who keep asking him? I see these verses as Christ encouraging His listeners. This, after giving them several pretty hard lessons and the severe consequences of obedience. This ought to be a revelation that leads to a reformation of modern evangelical Christianity, which tends to paint Jesus 
as offering his followers a much easier route to righteousness over and against a harsh and rigid rules-based law of Moses. Some denominational doctrines go so far as to make obedience an enemy of grace. And yet we find Yeshua not making new or replacement rules, but rather reminding his audience of the old rules and insisting that the people follow them and then taking those rules and a step further. So they include not just proper outward behavior, but a more inward intent and motivation that is pure. It's my estimation that not judging and shaming others is a most difficult rule for a human being to accomplish. The ICC commentary on Matthew says this, Because human beings unhappily possess an inbred proclivity to mix ignorance of themselves with arrogance towards others, the call to recognize one's own faults is a commonplace of moral and religious traditions, including the Bible. The reality is that Christ, in his Sermon on the Mount, has thus far set forth a high ideal of the Law of Moses and the entire Hebrew Bible that seems as though he has, under his own authority, moved the goalposts of righteousness. Now, no doubt, many in the crowd that thought that what he was demanding was laughingly impossible to achieve. So now in verses 7 through 11, Christ is going to tell them how to apprehend the seemingly impossible. The key, he says, involves action and not passivity. Ask, seek, knock. These are the themes of verses 8 and 9. These are verbs, they're action words. We must expend actual physical and mental energy to move forward towards the goal of righteousness. It's the opposite of a well-worn story that's one of my favorites because it so well illustrates an ill-conceived tendency of too many Christians. Listen to this story. A man was in his house when he heard that a flood was coming. And he prayed and he prayed and he, he believed that because he was a Christian that God would miraculously save him. And almost as soon as he said amen, an emergency vehicle appeared on the flooded road in front of his house. And he bid him, come to the truck, we'll take you to safety. And he said, no, God is going to rescue me. Well, the floodwaters rose and he had to go upstairs into the second story of his house to stay dry. And so he prayed again for God to rescue him. Suddenly, a boat appears 
and it bids him to climb aboard to safety. And he declined. And he said, no, God is going to rescue me. And the floodwaters continued to rise until he was forced to seek refuge on the roof of his house. He prayed again even more fervently. Soon a helicopter hovered over him, let down a rope and a harness, told him, put it on, and they'll pull him up to safety. He says, no, God's going to rescue me. A few minutes later, the rising floodwaters swept him away to his death. And upon arriving in heaven, he had confronted God. And he said, I have faith. Why didn't you rescue me? And God said, I tried. I sent you a truck, a boat, and a helicopter, and you refused them all. Ask, seek, knock. Christ has given us the means to rescue. Will we take advantage of it? We're not told to pray to God for our needs and then just sit passively and wait for Him to supernaturally deliver them in a nice, neat package that we've envisioned. On the other hand, it's not that if we work at it hard enough, we will cause what we want from God to come about. Yeshua says that if we ask, it will be given. If we seek, we will find, and if we knock, the door will be open. You know, he's not giving a terribly deep riddle or a difficult principle to the people here. The meaning is, you have to do something to become a member of God's kingdom. So one way to help grasp the point is to see it in the negative instead of the positive sense. If you want something and you don't ask for it, then of course the person who has what you want and has no idea about it, and you're not going to receive it. If you don't begin to search for something that you want, you won't actively seek it, then of course you'll never find it. It's like the old sports expression that you'll never hit a home run unless you get that bat off your shoulder and swing at the ball. And if you want to go in a, in, a, in a place that has a door between you and your destination, then naturally you got to knock on the door to let the owner know you're there. Otherwise, you'll remain standing on the outside looking in. It's simple. These principles aren't so much theologically driven as they are common sense. So coming to God and becoming a member of his kingdom is a dual venture. Both God and the worshiper must do their parts. And because God will never fail at his part, all the onus lies upon us. We must be active by seeking, asking, and knocking. So we have another case in the Jewish Matthew's presentation of the Jewish Jesus' words that reveal a truth on two levels. On the shot level, it is simply common sense that to gain access to the kingdom we must ask, seek, and knock as we would for most anything else that we wanted. 
But on the Ramez level, it is a deeper spiritual truth that says we are not to be discouraged by the target of moral perfection that Yeshua says we must pursue. Rather, even as is common among all things in life, if we ask, God will give. If we seek, God will show us the way. If we knock, the door to the kingdom of heaven will be open to us. I mean, what an optimistic expression of a great eternal joy that indeed can be ours, but it's also of the loving character of God. And to support this truth, Yeshua gives us yet another illustration. In verse 9, he asks the great crowd a rhetorical question. If a son asks his father for, a, for bread, would the father give him a stone instead? Next in verse 10, another rhetorical question is asked. If that same son asked for a fish, would the father hand him a snake? Now, I say rhetorical because there's only one answer to both of these questions, an emphatic, well, of course not. The father would never respond to a son in such a way. Please notice the father-son relationship here. While Yeshua is speaking in terms of the natural world, and his illustration thus invokes a human father and his human son, at the same time, it includes the kingdom relationship between God the Father and His Son, Yeshua. Yeshua, as the Father's agent, would not come to Him with a request, and then His Father would give Him something wholly inappropriate or even dangerous. So says Yeshua in verse 11, since there is virtually no possibility that an earthly father who in relation to God and because of his fallen state is just full of evil, would ever do something so contemptuous as to give his own son a stone in place of bread or a snake in place of a fish, how much more a totally loving and just God is willing to keep on responding to his worshiper's requests with good things. Is Messiah revealing a new side to God, heretofore unknown to the Jewish people? Well, the prophet Isaiah used a similar illustration. In Isaiah 49:15, can a woman forget her child at the breast, not show pity on the child from her womb? Even if these were to forget, I, God, would not forget you. I mean, what reassurance is being offered here? Love God, worship Him, and the kingdom with, love that kingdom with all your heart, and then you won't be denied entry. Believers are afforded privileges and benefits that no others on the face of our planet are. Well, next we move on to verse 12 and what has come to be known as the golden rule. So open your Bibles back up again to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to start at verse 12 
and read on to verse 20. Starting with verse 12. Always treat others as you would like them to treat you. That sums up the teaching of the Torah and the prophets. Go in through the narrow gate, for the gate that leads to destruction is wide, the road is broad, and many travel it. But it is a narrow gate, and it's a hard road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Beware of the false prophets. They come to you wearing sheep's clothing, but underneath they're hungry wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Can people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every healthy tree produces a good fruit, but a poor tree produces bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, or a poor tree good fruit. Any tree that does not produce good fruits cut down, thrown into the fire. So you will recognize them by their fruit. Now, this verse 12, the golden rule, essentially forms the molten core of the Sermon on the Mount. It is a generalization that is meant to sum, sum up not just the sermon, but the Torah as well. Now, I want to emphasize this point. Say it again. The general, the, the golden rule, rather, the golden rule is a generalization and not a simple bumper sticker statement that so succinctly encompasses the entire Torah, such that to study it becomes a rather redundant effort. Notice how Yeshua says that the golden rule is a summation of the law, or, or the Torah, and the prophets. This takes us back now to chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, 17 through 19, where he uses the same expression, the law and the prophets. Now recall at that time we learned that, at, that this term, what it means is, is the Tanakh, the entire Hebrew Bible, and not only the law of Moses, or not only even just the Torah. So I'm going to say this differently. If you were a Jew hearing Yeshua's words, you would properly take his statement to mean this is a summation of the Bible. Doing unto others as you would have them do unto you is a way of bringing the rather abstract love your neighbor as you as yourself law of Leviticus 19:18 into a focused and doable reality. I mean, I might not be sure how to love my neighbor as I love myself, but when dealing with my fellow man, I can more easily think of whether what I'm about to do in my dealings with that person is something I'd want for myself if the roles were reversed. I mean, who doesn't want to be dealt with in compassion and mercy and kindness, in generosity and justice and fairness and in love? So the exact situation and even some case examples aren't needed. Our actions that ought to spring from the golden rule are self-evident. In fact, to me, this is an exhortation by Yeshua to a people who already practiced such a principle in theory, if not 
quite as well in practice. It is certainly not a new or novel notion that's invented here by Christ. In fact, it could well lend itself to common wisdom in almost all ages and cultural settings. Paul says essentially the same thing, but he says it in his own unique way in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Don't owe anyone anything except to love one another. For whoever loves his fellow human being has fulfilled Torah. For the commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet, and any others are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not do harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fullness of Torah. Now, no doubt, Jesus would have fully agreed with Paul's version of love your neighbor as yourself and then what it looks like in action. As an interesting aside, notice how Yeshua spoke of the golden rule principle as a summation of the Law and the Prophets. Paul summed it up by quoting from among the Ten Commandments that concerns human-to-human relationships as contained in the Law of Moses. Yeshua was speaking in the Holy Land to a majority crowd of Holy Land Jews. Paul was speaking in a foreign land to a mixed group of Diaspora Jews and Gentiles who were not so familiar with the Torah, the Law, and the Prophets. So the differences in the words and the illustrations used and even the nuances between what we find Christ saying in the Gospels versus what Paul says in his epistles is not a difference in theology. Rather, it reflects a difference in his audience. Let's move on to verse 13. We now enter a part of Jesus' speech that we might broadly describe as a selection of wisdom sayings. Verses 13 and 14 that speak of the narrow and the broad gates are, again, nothing new within the Hebrew religion. But it is a bit different way of saying a principle that that we can trace at least as far back as the Exodus from Egypt. Deuteronomy 11.26-28 says this, See, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you listen to the mitzvot, the commandments of Adonai your God that I'm giving you today, and the curse, if you do not listen to the mitzvot, the commandments of Adonai your God, but you turn aside from the way I'm ordering you today and you follow other gods that you have not known. This states the God principle of the two ways that I think it would not be an exaggeration to say is one of the governing dynamics of the universe. I want to give you a couple of other scriptural examples to make the point. In Deuteronomy 30, Verse 15, look, I am presenting you today with on the one hand life and good, on the other death and evil. Jeremiah 21.8, 
And here's what you are to tell this people. Adonai says, look, I'm presenting you with the way of life and with the way of death. The apocryphal book of 2nd Enoch in chapter 30, written about 300 years before Christ, speaks of the two ways of lightness and darkness, good and bad. I could give you more examples from well before the book of the birth of Jesus, but the point is this. The idea of the two ways is ancient and thoroughly Hebrew, although there are probably good examples of other historic cultures that held a similar religious philosophy. But always the good way, the way of light, the way of life, the way of righteousness, these are always the more difficult ways. Therefore a journey that is hard and inconvenient that is the underlying understanding in Yeshua's narrow gate. He will use this same mental picture of a small gate or a little portal and the difficulty of passing through it later on in Matthew chapter 19. In 19.24 he says, Furthermore, I tell you it's easier for a camel to pass through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So in another sense, the matter of God's worshipers necessarily having to pass through the narrow gate, this is a warning about God's coming judgment of the world. The bottom line is, only a few will escape, because only a few will find it and use that narrow gate. In opposition to the narrow gate, the constricted gate is the wide gate, and that wide road that leads to it. The Greek word used for wide is eurukoros. The meaning and mental picture is of something roomy and spacious. One could almost say it means inviting. As with the abstract idea of loving your neighbor as yourself, so it is with entering through the narrow gate. What does that look like in real life? Well, Proverbs gives us a real-world example. Proverbs 28.6, it's better to be poor and live an honest life than to be crooked in one's ways, although rich. So the issue of the narrow versus the broad gate and road involves a moral choice. We are not predestined to enter or to be blocked from that narrow gate any more than we're predestined to enter or be blocked from that wide gate. One may be poor and dishonest or be poor and honest. One may be rich and dishonest or rich and honest. Poor or rich are not godly virtues, but honesty is. That narrow gate of honesty, in the case of verbs, uh, Proverbs 28 and honesty, is a moral choice. Honesty is a moral choice. Tertullian 
a Gentile Christian from the late second, early third century said this about this passage in Matthew. The way of evil is broad and well supplied with travelers. Would not all men take its easy course if there were nothing to fear? Truer words were never spoken. If it weren't for the fear of God's judgment, why wouldn't a human take the easier, more inviting way that the majority follows instead of struggling to stay on a straight but very narrow pathway along with so few who set foot upon it only to end up at an even narrower gateway. You know, it's an interesting although horrific fact that the Bible tells us, frankly, that prior to Noah and the great flood, all the way up to Abraham, and then on to Jacob taking his clan to Egypt, and then Moses leading them out, and then from the judges who ruled over God's rebellious people, each one seeking to do what was right in their own eyes, through the ear of the kings and the prophets, and then all of God's warnings spoken through them, and then the warnings ignored, Israel sent into exile, it is always the majority of humanity that chooses to take the evil way. So while the love of God is usually the reason we choose to remain on that narrow path, it's the fear of God that is usually the reason we chose that path in the first place. Without that fear, no one would choose the more difficult of the two ways. This is the reason that I and some other pastors and Bible teachers rail at this modern brand of a cheapened Christianity that chooses to diminish any healthy fear of God and instead speaks only about His love. Could it be that this is the dynamic at play that has seen a steady and accelerating decline in Christianity in the West for the past 75 years? That is because the fear of God has just been shoved to the background and removed altogether. Fewer seekers see reason to step foot onto that narrow road. And those who do often soon step off of it at the first sight of difficulty. Well, verses 15 through 23 have as their subject false prophets. Oh man, I could speak for weeks on this, but I'm going to resist that urge in order to stay on track. So after Yeshua offered a number of words of encouragement, he now immerses himself into addressing what was no doubt an enormous problem in his day, not unlike the enormous problem it is in our day. Let's understand something. Yeshua is not talking about the false prophets of the pagan world. He is talking about the false prophets of the Jewish religious world. But even more, since his entire goal was to prepare the people to accept him as their Messiah, and by the way, something he has yet in the book of Matthew to publicly declare, then in a more pointed sense, he is speaking to believers. He is speaking to you, he is speaking to me, 
He is speaking to Christians, Messianics, the church, the believing synagogues, because it's out of these that come the false prophets he's talking about. Now, first of all, let's understand what the term prophet means to Yeshua. See, it was a broadly used term in his day. It was generally agreed in first century Judaism that the era of the Old Testament prophets was over and that holy men making God given predictions of the future or, or and bringing oracles from God for the most part was no longer operational. Thus, we don't find any New Testament products, uh, prophets except for Yeshua himself. Not even John and his apocalypse was seen among the Jewish believers and the earliest Christians so much as a prophet, as one who taught on the prophets of old and what their writings portended. Now that the kingdom of heaven had arrived, Christ had come and gone, and for later times. A prophet in Christ's day was one who taught and provided exegesis and commentary on the written word of God. Paul would have been seen as a prophet. They were also Jewish religious people who advocated for a particular brand of worship, tradition, and belief over and against other ones. That is not to say that there weren't those who claimed to have information about the future that God revealed to them, but most of this variety weren't taken very seriously, and when they were, it was usually by some small group of Jews. Now, clearly among the Essens, for example, the writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there were those who were considered among them as true prophets. So while it's difficult to have a simple definition of what a prophet was to Yeshua, probably the best mental picture we can get in the 21st century of what he was speaking about would be a pastor, a priest, a rabbi, or a Bible teacher. So a false prophet was one who taught falsely about God's Word, or taught against God's biblical principles and laws, or made up new ones. A false prophet is not one who makes an innocent error in their teaching. All teachers of God's Word are human, and we are prone to mistakes, or we make speculations and we give opinions sometimes as though they are fact. Rather, a false prophet is one who knows the truth, or perhaps ignores the truth, or picks and chooses which biblical facts that uphold their belief and they dismiss all others, and so consciously chooses to spin the Holy Scriptures and pervert it to his or her own purposes. This is evil that comes disguised as good. Yeshua uses the metaphor of a wolf that comes camouflaged in sheep's clothing. Now, I want to tell you something. A wolf knows it's a wolf. It doesn't in any way think it's a sheep. 
So it dons the outward appearance of a sheep in hopes that others don't know the truth about their identity. I mean, might a wolf actually be deluded into believing that it's a sheep? Well, I suppose it's not impossible. So is Christ issuing a new warning because it's a new problem? Obviously not. Listen to some Old Testament wisdom concerning false prophets. Jeremiah 23.16, Adonai's Sefaot says, Don't listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are making you act foolishly. They're telling you visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of Adonai. Ezekiel 13.2, Human being, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy. Tell those prophesying out of their own thoughts. Listen to what Adonai says. Isaiah 9.14, The old and the honored are the head, while prophets teaching lies are the tail. So this image that is conjured up is of the meek being deceived and devoured by predators. Paul once taught this in Acts 20, verses 28-29, Watch out for yourselves and for all the flock in which the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, has placed you as leaders to shepherd God's messianic community, which he won for himself at the cost of his own son's blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you, and they won't spare the flock. I want to end this week's lesson by telling you that it is a slanderous accusation made by the church that these ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing were Jews who came to dissuade believers from their faith. This makes Jews an enemy of Christians. Rather, it is certainly at first Jews who professed belief, whether they actually believed or not is another matter, that are the wolves in sheep's clothing, because all of the first many thousands of believers in Christ were Jews. But as Gentiles began to adopt the faith and join the flock, many also joined the wolf pack, until within a few decades, the false prophets consisted almost exclusively of Gentiles. See, a theological debate that has never been settled is whether in the New Testament a person who professes the faith and teaches falsely is actually a believer or they faked it in order to attack actual believers. We won't be settling that matter today. However, what we can know is that they existed and they continue to exist within and among congregations of believers and they make themselves to appear as believers. And since these prophets, false prophets aren't clearly labeled, Christ next gives us a truth detection method, if we will but use it. And that's what we're going to discuss in our next lesson on the book of Matthew.